search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from my people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would have believed in me, for he wrote of me. But you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? That is John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47. This is Bible Belt Babblings, and I am your host, Sam Blandon. The long wait is over, friends, and part two is here. I know that the tens of you listening right now have been looking forward to this second part of the conversation on our, in our series on the gospel, and we are finally getting it done and bringing it to you. If you haven't checked out that first part yet, I would highly recommend doing so. That way you aren't just, you know, jumping into the middle of this conversation. If you have already listened to that part, though, I hope you are as excited as I am for this part, because we are going to get into it today. In this series, the main idea is this, all of scripture has a singular, unified message or theme. That being, man has a problem. And that problem is sin. And mankind cannot do anything to solve that problem on his own. And yet, as we saw last time, and as we will see this time, God has a plan to solve that problem. From the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis and the Flood, to God's covenant with Abraham and the arrival of Moses as leader of Israel, everything that happens in the Old Testament, everything that we talked about last time, reveals that God is sending a Messiah, a seed of Abraham, to redeem his people. We left off with Moses last time. We are picking up there today. And joining me once again to do that is Mr. Caleb Hardage. What's going on, man? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, Dude, that last part was so good. Like, I, you know, I was in the conversation and even I got a lot out of it just listening back over it. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm I'm so glad that recording that first part didn't scare you off, <laughs> no, even, though, even though it took some effort. Yep. Um, and, and I'm, again, thankful that you agreed to join up with me for uh, part two. So let's get into it, shall we? We left off last time talking about this shift that occurs from the one man of Abraham interacting with God and God's promise to create a nation from his offspring, this being known as the Abrahamic covenant. And now that nation has been established and one man, the prophet Moses, is raised up by God as the representative of that nation before God. So let's begin talking about Moses and his calling. What do we need to know to begin from this point. All right, so we left off last time with the Israelite people, Abraham's descendants, in slavery in Egypt. And God raises up this man named Moses, an Israelite by birth and an Egyptian by 
nurture. He was raised as an Egyptian prince, and he's going to be the agent of God's deliverance on behalf of these people. So we have this added aspect of representation here to what God has already revealed through Abraham. So Abraham was a prophet, and he spoke to God, um, and God spoke to him, and he was to be the father of the seed that would bring deliverance for Israel. And now we have a descendant of Abraham who is a prophet as well, but now he's also this added role of mediator. He Mm. speaks to God on behalf of many people, and God speaks to these people through him. And so it's this clarification of roles and this added aspect. And so through Moses and through Moses' brother Aaron, God leads the Israelite people out of Egypt and into the wilderness toward the promised land that he had promised Abraham to give to his descendants uh, almost 400 years ago. And so basically we've reached the next phase in God's redemptive plan where God makes these huge strides toward realizing the promises that he made to Abraham. Mm. You know, one of the things that I find so incredible about this part of the story is that we really see the gospel message being played out pretty explicitly here with the Exodus story. Um, You know, we have a people that are in bondage in Egypt. The people of Israel are in slavery, and God raises up a representative to free them from that slavery, to lead them out of that slavery. And his purpose for doing so, as we'll see, is to create a people that are set apart for his glory. Um, And so that's actually what we look at next is the giving of the law. Um, God has this people that he has redeemed for himself out of uh, slavery through Moses, and now through Moses he leads them into the wilderness towards the promised land that he promised to Abraham, as you said. Um, and, And a part of that process is giving them the law to actually make them into a set-apart people. Right, and so just as God had delivered the Israelites in dramatic fashion, um, we also see the giving the law in this in this very dramatic fashion as well. The Israelite people, now a nation, no longer just a group of families, they stop at this mountain named Sinai, and God comes to visit the Israelite people. So he, he comes down upon this mountain, and Moses, as the people's representative, goes up to meet God, and we give the, we have this giving of the law. And so... The first question we would ask is, is what is the law? What does it comprise of? And we see that starting in Exodus 20 with the, the Ten Commandments. It's not only God's moral law, but then also through Leviticus and parts of Deuteronomy, we see that it's a ceremonial and a ritual law too. Mm-hmm. It's these set of things that God has required for the people of Israel in order for them to stay in right relationship with him, in order to stay in the covenant with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the parts that's so devastating about this story also is what we see is God has just redeemed this people out of slavery. He's brought them to Sinai. They're on the verge of going into the promised land, and yet what happens? They they slip into idolatry. Um, and so right off the bat, we see they have this representative in Moses, and yet even though they have this representative in Moses that God has raised up, they still have that sin problem. Um, And so we have the story of Moses goes up onto the mountain to convene with God, to be given the Ten Commandments, to be given the law that will be good for the people. Meanwhile, the people of Israel are down on the hillside making an idol 
to worship because they feel that God has abandoned them. Yeah, and I think it shows really what the purposes of the law are as well. So there's really kind of four steps to um, what is known in seminaries, at least, as the Mosaic Covenant, where God makes a covenant with the people through Moses. And the first part is the Exodus, where he brings the Israelite people out of Egypt. And then there's this sealing of the covenant and the giving of the law um, that comes with Moses. And then there's also the rituals that come with it. But we also see that the law can't take away the very basic part of the human problem, mm-hmm. and that's sinful hearts. Right. And so it's, it's really not given as a way to be saved, and that's mm-hmm. how it's often been misunderstood throughout church history. Um, you've probably heard a sermon like that someplace um, where the law was the way of the Old Testament to be saved, mm. and now we have grace. Um, but that would institute this um, contradiction from what we just saw with Abraham, where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right. So it, it's not this regression where suddenly the Israelite people, Abraham's descendants, are farther away from mm-hmm. God than Abraham. The, the way to have righteousness with God is still belief. And so the law has to have a different purpose than that. Um, and so it's really meant to be um, instructional as a means of grace in it, and in a sense, a set of training wheels for a people that doesn't, um, doesn't have a heart for God. Well, and we can even see right off the bat, I mean, if, if the law was given to Israel to save them, then they kind of screwed up from square one because they were sinning before they even got the law. They were already breaking the law before it was even given to them. So if the purpose of the law is to save them, then they already have a problem from square one. Right. It, the law is meant to instead tell them about the one who will save them, the one who can save them. I love the way Galatians puts it, that the law is a tutor unto Christ. Um, so the law wasn't given 400 years after Abraham's death to lead people away from Christ or mm. present another way than the seed, um, but instead to lead them to Christ, to the seed, to tell them, what it would be like. And we we see that throughout the prophets as well. God makes all these statements like, I do not delight in the blood of lambs and goats. Or we see in the Psalms where David says that a broken and contrite heart is what the Lord desires. Mm. And so it these sacrifices and, and atonement from the blood of animals isn't really given to please God but to show people what is going to be required to please God. Right, and it's through the faith that God will forgive them of their sins by those sacrifices whenever they repent of their sins and and show that they have repented through their sacrifice that, that God forgives them. Right, and just as Abraham at the um, attempted sacrifice of Isaac, uh, mm-hmm. it's really faith in God's provision of a sacrifice. Now, one of the things that I want to make note of or ask about, rather, um, is the conditional component of this covenant, because we do have this side of the covenant where it is a promise from God to the people of Israel um, that he will preserve them, and yet at the same time, with the Mosaic covenant, there's this, this conditional clause, if you will, where God says, where God says, if you keep these commandments, then I will be your God and you will be my people. So what exactly are we seeing here? How do we make sense of this in light of the fact that 
God's choosing of Israel as his people is by his grace and not by their works. Right. So we really see kind of two components to this Mosaic covenant, just as we saw to the Abrahamic covenant. So Abraham has this greater ultimate promise from God to be a blessing to all the nations or that his seed would be a blessing to all the nations. But then we also have this physical component where he gets a literal physical child. Um, And so it's the same way in this Mosaic covenant where ultimately um, God is showing them the provision of Christ through the law. But we also have this component where their inheritance of the physical promised land is contingent upon their obedience to God and their adherence to the covenant, the requirements that he's laid out for them. So in, in one sense, it's, it's training wheels or a tutor unto Christ. It retains that people. It curbs people's sinful behavior and desires. Um, but then there is also a very real contingent component where if they do well, they will prosper in the promised land. But if they don't, God will drive them out of the promised land. They'll lose hold of what God had promised to them through Abraham. And so we actually see an example of this with the first generation that attempts to enter into the promised land, right? Um, They approach the promised land, they send spies into the land to develop a plan for conquest, and they find out that the people there are of formidable size, and there is fear in the people, and they have a lack of faith. They don't trust in God's promise to give them the land. They don't trust in God's promise to provide for them. It is their lack of faith that ultimately causes God to allow that generation to die out over a period of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Right, and so after that generation dies out, God sets his covenant love on a a new generation because he's still invested in delivering those promises to Abraham and he, he brings them into the promised land, drives out the pagan peoples before them, and really establishes what he'd promised Abraham 400 years ago. And then we get Joshua, who's the successor to Moses, mm. who's the, the leader of the people, and he recapitulates all the law of God to them in Deuteronomy. Um, and really, not only that, he doesn't just repeat the law, but he actually exegetes the law in a sense. He, he mm. gets to the heart of the law, and, and we see what the heart of the law is, what the heart of the requirement to please God is in Deuteronomy 6.4, um, known as the Shema. And it's that they are required to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. Um, that's the ultimate aim of the law of God. But Joshua also points to what really the purpose of the law in that standard is to reveal when he says to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for Mm. he's a holy God. Mm. Okay, so with Joshua, he really gets at the heart of this law God has given to you so that you may obey him and do what is pleasing to him, and yet you're not going to be able to do that fully on your own. You're not going to be able to fully please God. Right, and so we we look ahead, and Joshua already expects that these people will um, lose hold of what God has given them, because we go back to this physical component of of not just entering and conquering in the promised land, but now keeping the promised land. And Mm. so you see these series of blessings and, and curses that are listed in Deuteronomy, blessings for those people physically in the land if they keep the law of God, and curses if not. And it's not so much a question of if as when they will break the law of God because they're not able to serve the Lord. They don't have hearts that desire God 
And so we already have this this list of the punishments that God is going to bring on the Israelite people, ultimately ending in their exile from the Mm, promised land. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of times we tend to look back at these um, Old Testament, you know, the nation of Israel and and get angry with them or frustrated with them over their disobedience of God. But really, this is a reflection, once again, of the problem of man. This is a reflection in the Old Testament. This is a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to solve, and that is that man alone cannot save himself. We ourselves are not good enough. We do not have the nature in and of ourselves to obey God and to do what is pleasing to God which is why we have this promised seed that is given. And we actually see this this sin problem work out in the book of Judges, right? For a time, Israel is obedient to God. They, for a time, obey God's commandments, and they are worshiping him alone. They're following the leadership of Joshua, and they actually go into the land and drive out some, not, not all, but most of the people of the land, And yet that sin problem of man comes back whenever Joshua passes away. Right. So we see that really the giving of the law is not enough to hold in check the sinful hearts of the Israelite people. So there also needs to be a leader, an enforcer, a fulfiller of the law um, that can do so on Israel's behalf. And that's what we see attempted during the time of the judges. So judges starts with, as you mentioned, Um, this failure um, of each Israelite tribe's inability to take full possession of the promised land. Mm. Um, They can't can't fully do it because they lack trust in the word of God. Um, And so Israel's failure in military conquest and its failure to destroy the idols of those nations that they conquered kind of foreshadows what is going to happen in the time of Judges, and that's really apostasy, for lack of a better word. Mm. It's it's falling away from the faith, from the promises of God. Right. And there's this recurring theme that we see over and over again in the book of Judges, where there's this line that's given. And it says, and in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Right. So Moses is gone. Joshua is gone. There's no prophet anymore. Um, and, And it points to this need of a leader, a king over the people of Israel, a king that's already been provided for in the law of God and in Deuteronomy. Um, But all you have instead here are these judges, these charismatic leaders that um, really become more and more depraved as the Israelite people become more and more sinful throughout Mm. the book. And so there's this that repeated refrain that points to the need for a king, because without a king to enforce this law, without a king to uphold the law, Um, everyone will do what is right in their own eyes, which is anything but the law. And with the judges, even, it's almost an opportunistic rising up of these leaders. They only really come on the scene whenever Israel is being attacked by the surrounding nations. And so even to the extent that the judges rise up to lead Israel, it's really only whenever Israel has a big problem that they're facing. And it's not somebody that is rising up to lead Israel in keeping God's commandments, but really just somebody that God raises up to save Israel whenever their sin has gotten them into trouble. 
Right. So each time Israel falls into deeper and deeper sin, and, and according to the law of God, they invite the judgment of God in the form of oppression from other people. On them. Mm. And yet they, they cry out to God each time they come under oppression. But the sense of, of crying out that it gives in the book of Judges is never really a cry of repentance, um, but more of just a, a complaint to God. And so right. God raises up these leaders to deliver them, but each time with, with each judge, the delivery or the deliverance gets shorter and shorter. The mm. time of peace gets shorter and shorter, and the oppression becomes greater and greater. And so it's this sliding scale of depravity and sin. And, and what it's really meant to do is it's supposed to point the reader um, and the Israelite to a desire for an ultimate deliverer. So not just a judge, but a judge and a king that can kind of bring a perpetual rest for God's people, eternal peace. Um, and not only that, but can uphold the law so people no longer do what is right in their own eyes, but they do what is right according to God's word. Right, and what we actually see is that God kind of ushers that process or helps that process along by raising up the prophet Samuel. And so this is the first prophet that, that Israel has had since Moses, um, and really it is Samuel's devotion to the Word of God. It's his continual reliance on the Word of God that sets him apart from the judges. Um, and so once God raises up Samuel and he begins pointing the people back to God's word, that's whenever there we see another shift with the people of Israel. Right, and, and really like all of the other prophets or judges that have arisen to this point, um, Samuel's faithfulness only goes so far. And mm. his, his judgment starts to lapse in his old age, and his sons who are going to be prophets or, and priests after him are, are evil and sinful. They take advantage of God's word and of God's people. And it leads the nation of Israel to request a king from Samuel. And while requesting a king is not inherently sinful, because um, there's, there's a model of a king provided for in Deuteronomy, Israel requests a king that would judge them like all the nations. Mm. So in other words, rather than turning to God's word as their ruler and God as their king, they turn to the worldly solution of what other nations have as a king. Right. So really their request of a king, their request to be like all the other nations, even after God has rescued them from slavery, set them apart, given them the law, and given them prophets as mediators between God and the nation of Israel, they desire to basically exit the covenant. They, they are rejecting Yahweh's kingship over Israel in favor of an earthly king. And what we see is that that request for a king is granted by God, and yet it doesn't work out very well at all. Um, God grants them a king, and he grants them a worldly king. Um, and so that's whenever Saul, uh, King Saul, arrives on the scene, um, and, and Saul is raised up and anointed as the king of Israel, and yet Saul is a worldly king. Right. He's, he's really everything that the human mind would think of when you think of a king. You mentioned that he's, he's tall, he's young, he's handsome, he's strong, he's from a wealthy family, he's charismatic. Um, he's really like one of the final judges instead of an actual king. Mm. And so he um, arrogates to himself authority that kings under the kingship of God were never meant to have. And pretty soon he begins to demonstrate a lack of trust in God and, and a, a low respect for the word of God, the proper worship of God. He makes unlawful sacrifices without Samuel, um, 
foolish vows that nearly get his son Jonathan killed. Um, He refuses to devote the Amalekites to utter destruction in obedience to God. And each time that he violates the commands of God and disobeys the word of God as it comes from Samuel, he gives this kind of half-hearted repentance. He's insincere in his insincere in his sorrow over breaking the law of God. And as a result, the Lord ends up rejecting him as king over Israel. And we really see by the end of Saul's kingship that Israel is actually worse off than before, mm. even during the time of the judges. So that the Philistines who were oppressing Israel at the time, they actually occupy more of the promised land than before the time of Saul. Right. And so this is a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty dismal situation that Israel finds itself in. You know, they thought that this king was going to be the solution to all their problems, and yet they're worse off in the end um, because of this king. But there is hope for Israel. Um, God is still faithful, and he's going to provide for them despite their, their honest rebellion against him. And so God has Samuel anoint a new king over Israel, a king that's actually going to represent God's values and represent what a true king is supposed to look like, and, and that's the man David. Right. So we have the human idea of a king in Saul, and he proves very definitively that he can't achieve redemption or restoration for God's people. He doesn't uphold the law of God. He doesn't care about the word of God. Um, but now we see David, who is in many ways um, someone that no one would put forward as king. He's mm. he's young. He's boyish. Yeah. He doesn't have much experience. He's a shepherd. He takes care of sheep for a living. He's not somebody like Saul who's from a wealthy family who, you know, is a, a strong warrior or anything like that. David is is just is simple. Right. And the one thing he has that Saul doesn't have is a heart, um, a mm. heart after God's own heart, a, a care and devotion for the law and the word of God. It's interesting that there's this recurring theme that happens that I think is worth noting real quick. Um, The fact that those that God chooses as his representatives that he has chosen with David and up until this point are never the people that the world would have chosen. I mean, we see the same thing with Moses. We see the same thing with Aaron. Um, You know, Moses wasn't a very good speaker. He was quiet. He was nervous. Um, same thing with David. He wasn't somebody that everybody else would have picked at king as king, and yet he is the one that God chose. Right. God repeatedly uses the weak people and the weak things in the world to shame the strong and to show, just as in his provision of a son to Abraham, that salvation can only come through the power of the Lord. Mm. So what we see with David is this return to the system of having a single mediator between God and the people of Israel. And really, this isn't depicted any better than with the story of David versus Goliath, right? Um, Israel is at war with the Philistines. They're on the battlefield to face them. And there's this champion, Goliath, this nine-foot-tall warrior, I mean, has been training his entire life to fight, that comes out on the battlefield and puts the Israelite army to fear. And David's response, rather than being afraid, is to have faith in God, to have faith in the promise that God has given, that he will protect Israel, that he will provide for Israel, and that none of Israel's enemies can stand up against them. And so David meets Goliath on the battlefield, 
um, stands up against him in faith that God will provide and will give what he has promised. Um, and it's David's defeat of Goliath that sets the tone for his kingship. Right. So for the first time since the life of Joshua, really, Israel is given a glimpse of the promised redemption of God's people. Um, so just as Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, so God uses David as a king, a representative of his people in their place to rescue them from the Philistines. And it really leads up to this point of what we would call the Davidic covenant, this covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this covenant really connects back to God's promise to Abraham. So God had promised Abraham to um, make him exceedingly fruitful, that he would have many offspring, that all the nations would be blessed and that kings should come from him. And now we have a king from Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, and God is now promising this king, David, that he will establish his throne forever and bless all the nations through a king of the Davidic line. So we've had this, this progression of revelation, if you will, of who and what the, the promised seed is going to be. So he's a prophet like Abraham. He's going to be a mediator and a priest like Moses and in the time of the law. And now he's going to be a king. And not just any king, but a king from the line of David whose throne will reign forever. Mm, wow. Now, what happens with David? I mean, you know, we have this king who is supposed to represent what a king after God's own heart is going to be like. And yet he, being a man fails just as every other man leader of Israel that has come before him, right? Right. So the Old Testament has this habit of just when you think someone might be the promised seed, someone's mm. going to be the savior of Israel, um, it, the biblical authors take great care to taint that person's integrity, that mm. person's legacy, and to show you that they're just a sinner as well. And it's the same thing with David. He's he's a sinner in need of redemption, just as all the people that he's representing and we get to this point of King David and Bathsheba, where mm -hmm. he is enamored with a, another man's wife, and he um, commits adultery with her and then eventually conspires to have her husband, Uriah, murdered. Mm. Oh, man. So even whenever we think that we see this king that is going to be the one to lead Israel and going to be the one to restore Israel— and fulfill what God has for them, the fullness of what God has for him, he face plants. But there, there is some hope with David, and that is that his response to his recognition of his sin, his recognition of the fact that he has sinned against God by what he has done whenever Nathan, the prophet that came after Samuel, came to confront him about his sin, is that he repents. He recognizes that he has sinned against God, and he repents of it. He admits it, and he begs God for mercy. Yeah, so his reaction is profoundly different from every other leader in Israel's history. He learns this prophetic lesson of, of confessing sin and, and genuine repentance before God. And so you see really the other aspect of entrance into the kingdom of God, that it's by faith that we have righteousness, but it also results in this repentance from sin. Right. And unfortunately, I wish that we could say that that same theme continues with the rest of the kings. And admittedly, it does with some of them. We see that that, that same principle of returning to God's commands and returning to the word of God happens with some of the kings. 
But what we'll find is that a majority of the kings from here on out slip into further and further rebellion and idolatry against God. Right. So David really becomes the paradigm, the model by which we compare all kings that come after, whether they're good or bad. And it, it, he's actually the criteria that's used in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, whether they're good or bad, is, is not only do they uphold the law of God, but do they repent when they sin? Well, since we are coming up on the end of our time here, it looks like this is where we will have to leave off. And next time we'll pick up with the end of David's reign and the beginning of the rule of his son and heir, Solomon. What we will find is that David is really the last king that rules in the way that God's law prescribes. And the continuous bad rulership of the kings and the rebellion of Israel against God's law leads to the punishment of all of Israel through what is known as the great exile of the Babylonian captivity. Man, thank you once again so much for tuning in for this episode. Thank you for continuing to keep me in your prayers. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it, or at least I enjoyed it. I don't know. Caleb's (laughs) eyes are a little glazed over at the other end of the table. Uh, But seriously, I could not do this without the support of you, our audience. And a huge thank you to Caleb um, for his help on this. I'd seriously be at a loss without him. Of course. Um, I'm really looking forward to part three. I hope that you are too. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you leave us a review, share it with your friends, like it, subscribe, do all of the things that you're supposed to do with media like this. Um, also, if you're on Facebook, check out our Facebook page, Bible Belt Babblings, where I will post updates on upcoming programs and other information about the show. So all of that being said, we hope you will join us next time on Bible Belt Babblings. We will talk to you later. God bless. God bless.